today we continue this short series that we have been doing through the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas in uh, the book of Acts. And um, I want to ask you to reflect just verbally for a few seconds here, minutes, on what are some of the signs of God's goodness that you see uh, in life, in the world, in creation, Uh, those things that remind you of the goodness of God and the grace of God, what, what jumps out at you as I say that? Yeah. The first thing I just think about is my little son and just new life mm. in the world. I also have a lot of friends and family that all have babies and just the continued uh, creation of new life being born all the time. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's really good. Yeah. unexpected act of kindness, if you didn't hear Lori. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy.
Yeah. 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 And I'm, yeah, I, I love that as well. <clears throat> Something that reminds me of the goodness of God, the creativity of God. Hey, Joe, can you turn this down just a little bit? Um, is uh, like the deep sea is one of those things that I've always been fascinated with. I mean, who doesn't love just weird deep sea creatures? And uh, besides Jeremy, they're so, they're so bizarre. And uh, there are, you know, there are things that we don't even know about that live deeper than people have been. And it's like, why would God create those weird things? It's like just for his own enjoyment. He's like, oh, this is hilarious. Look at this thing. I, I don't know. I can't figure it out. But, you know, it's like deep sea creatures and, um, and go into aquariums with beautiful fish or, um, you know, a good zoo trip's always fun. Uh, you just see these creatures, and you're like, these are incredible. Um, just the God's creativity in making all of that is something that's always, like, grasped uh, grasp me and just reminded me of God's goodness in his creativity. Um, he's created such fun things uh, for us to enjoy. Um, and it's hard, you know, to remember that, I guess, in times like right now, and, you know, when, when there's just so much bad news or so many anxiety-provoking things, um, when you're scrolling the, your Twitter feed, it's just like, every, you know, if, if you just live on there, everything sounds terrible. Um, and it's hard to keep our minds focused on the goodness of God all around us that we can easily lose track of. It's not that there aren't bad things in the world. There certainly are. Um, but there's also really good things that we can remember and take heart in as well. Um, and so that, that kind of uh, leads us to where we're going today in this series up toward Easter. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open to Acts 14, verse 1 to 7. Uh, if not, it will also be on your screen. So, so far, uh, and Louisa talked about this last week a little bit after Paul's speech about um, the Jewish people stirring up the crowds against this message and against uh, God's messengers in this uh, gospel of Jesus. And so he starts with the same thing happened in Iconium. That's that same thing. Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of Jews and Greeks became believers. Some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord. And the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. But the people of the town were divided in their opinion about them. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Then a mob of Jews and Gentiles, along with their leaders, decided to attack and stone them. When the apostles learned of it, they fled to the region of Lycania, late, somewhere, to the towns of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding area. And there they preached the good news. So far, just in these first seven verses, um, 
What do you hear? What is it that strikes you? Okay, even if you mean well, it's not always received well. It's interesting, isn't it? This message of grace seems like a pretty good message. Yeah. Yeah. Right. People are divided. It's a good positive message. Good things are happening and people are split on their opinion on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they stayed there a long time. They preached this message boldly. Great things happened. A lot of opposition. They're like, okay, it's time to, to move on. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that is fascinating. Because Jews and Gentiles didn't often um, come together on things, right? Yeah, that is really fascinating. But they were united in this division. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. We saw a similar kind of opposition a few weeks ago. From a different source, it seems like there are a variety of people who don't like the gospel message of God's grace for all people very much. Why do you think, I I remember this old preacher named Fred Craddock, and uh, I remember hearing him in college for the first time, it was Bible college, and uh, I was blown away. This guy's the most creative, he's a super old, well, he died. But he was uh, pretty old at this time. And uh, I remember his voice was so weird, but he was such a good storyteller. But he said, I I still remember the statement from one of the best sermons I heard uh, on tape, on cassette tape, from Fred Craddock. And and in it he said, um, what's that? Millennials. Um, And in that he said, it's hard to believe, he had this weird voice, that the good news would have an enemy. <laughs> and and he's like, he had weird tone and pitch. It kept you interested. But why is it, do you think this message of God's grace has so many enemies? What do you think? Yeah, it threatens the status quo. Um, people like the old ways. Yeah. It takes away some power 
right. Yeah, yeah, it levels the playing field. It, uh, it breaks down the boundaries between people. Oh, that's a hard one for people, isn't it? When Paul says there's no longer Jews and Gentiles, slave nor free, woman, you know, female nor man, like, mm, that's strangely stepping on a lot of toes. We like to be divided. We like to think we're different or superior to other people. Uh, yeah, Everett. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, there are certain people or groups of people or countries or politicians that we just really want to see get it. And it's not grace that we want to see them get. So, I mean, there are so many reasons why grace has so many enemies. And it's not just people out there that resist grace, right? We'll come back to that. You know, here it says that there were some Jewish people that spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against this message of grace, against Paul and Barnabas. They were aggressively and actively working against God's message through Jesus. I mean, that's the only reason that someone would have to boldly proclaim grace. You think, is grace something that needs to be boldly proclaimed? That seems odd. It's passionately opposed. It's just, it's so crazy that God's acceptance of all people wouldn't be a message that everyone would be thrilled about, but something that would still need to be boldly proclaimed with our lives and our words. Um, did this get out of order? I'm a real pro after 20 years. Huh. Yeah, there it is. That's the problem. Um, there were some kiddos up here pretending to preach earlier. Um, and they had a different order than I do. It's okay. It's okay. Very different order. What's that? Well, we're somewhere close here. I think this is right. Okay. I just started this gig. I, um, but then again, you know, I, like I said, I think about the ways that I resist grace myself. 
there are times for me, and maybe this is true for you too, when it is really hard to rest in the grace of God, in his acceptance of me. To believe that God loves and accepts me, even in those times where I make bad decisions, I do something that hurts someone, something that doesn't honor God that I know doesn't honor God, or or when I hear this voice, there's this other voice that is so opposed to grace called shame that is telling me that I'm insignificant or I'm not worthy of love, that I'm not enough, that I'm too messed up for grace, that if I was really following God, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's not that it's hard to resist grace for people out there. I mean, it is so hard for us to accept grace. We resist grace in so many ways. So I've realized that even in passages like this, it's not just other people. We all have a hard time with grace. These people were just a little more bold about it, a little more honest. So the confrontation is alive and well in this passage, just as it is in our hearts. And I know that unless you're a total weirdo, none of us enjoy conflict and confrontation, right? I mean, some of us are better at it than others, but I don't think anybody takes joy in it. Oh, I can't wait to confront this person. I mean, that, that's messed up, if you think that. But it's unpleasant, so we seek to avoid it within ourselves, of course, this internal confrontation, but especially with other people, even when it makes it worse to avoid it. And when it comes to our ideas conflicting with the ideas of others or cherished cultural beliefs, it's really easy to soften what, soften what we believe with the hope that we can make things more easy for ourselves or try to merge our ideas with others as if they're all kind of the same and avoid that discomfort of that conflict of beliefs. But you know, the the problem is when we're not like Paul and Barnabas in correcting or just letting people know what we believe about God's grace or this message of Jesus, it takes away our opportunity to see potential transformation in people's lives. It may take away those lows where it's like, it's really hard to wrestle through this with somebody else that totally disagrees with me. But we also don't get the opportunity for us both to be transformed in the process of wrestling through those things. And it seems like in our cultural moment, we don't like to wrestle through those things. We like to just merge our ideas with others or kind of smash things together as if the message of the gospel of God's grace is just kind of an add-on for our own personal lives or an enhancement of what we of what everybody else believes and it saves us from a lot of conflict but it just leaves us in this like middle pseudo faith area where we don't experience the highs and lows of faith but just leaves us in the tepid middle but as they preached this message boldly of God's grace, it wasn't up to them to convince anybody. But God confirmed it through them with miraculous signs and wonders. You see that often in contexts where people are first discovering this revolutionary message of Jesus. 
God confirms it through these displays of power. Yeah, in this story, there are some extreme highs and lows. There are these moments of opposition, of people trying to stone Paul and Barnabas. But there's also people accepting the message of being transformed by God's grace, of starting a new life. And what's crazy is even amidst these highs and lows, the Holy Spirit was working through them, even in the midst of a situation that wasn't easy, safe, fun, probably even feeling that fulfilling for them in moments. But the Holy Spirit was still alive and present and active, even in the lows. And this kind of sets the stage for the rest of the story. Let me read this. Verse 8. While they were in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had the faith to be healed. There's a lot to talk about with that that we don't have time for today. Um, But I'd be happy to talk about this when we have more time individually. Because that's a, yeah, that's tough. So Paul called him in a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, These men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus, and Paul was Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. That's awesome. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town. So the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bowls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates. And they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay and ran out among the people shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things. Ouch. And turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. But even with these words, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely restrain the people from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town, thinking he was dead. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Well, that's a real roller coaster of a story. In uh, 8 AD, some of you may know this story or have read this long epic poem. Uh, about, this was about 40 years before Paul's journey. A book was written called The Metamorphosis. And in it, Ovid tells the story of how the gods Zeus and Hermes visited this town, not far from Lystra, disguised as these humble peasants. They were just traveling through the town. And they went all over town looking for a place to stay. And no one would take them in. The story will start to sound more and more familiar to you as we go. 
Um, Over and over, they were rejected again. No one wanted these peasants staying with them. Finally, a couple named Philemon and Bacchus offered them hospitality, gave them food to eat, wine to drink, and invited them to stay the night. And what no no one knew was that Zeus and Hermes, who were disguised as peasants, they were about to wipe out the entire area with a massive flood because of its incredible wickedness. Starting to sound familiar. But Philemon and Bacchus were rescued for their kindness and their hospitality and were rewarded by being delivered from this destruction. They were asked to leave the town before they destroyed the town and not look back. So it's basically a re, Ovid's retelling of a combination of the flood narrative and Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis uh, in his own culture. So in experiencing this kind of power from Paul and Barnabas and these unassuming visitors, which there were two of them, they most likely believed, as this was a popular uh, temple to worship at in this time, they truly believed that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. It kind of all makes sense. You, you would believe that. Just disguised as normal human beings. And so they enthusiastically welcome them just in case. Right? You don't want to make that mistake again. And even start to worship them as gods. What else could they be? And at its base level, they were trying to conform the message and action of Paul into their own already existing worldview. And as a result, lost the power and significance of the good news of God's grace altogether. And you wonder, you know, how often does that still happen today with the gospel? That we hear this message of God's news through Jesus, of his love and acceptance of all people, and we try to incorporate it, to insert it, to conform it to our own strongly held beliefs that we've grown up with or that our culture dictates are the right things to believe. As this add-on, this enhancement, we try to make sense of it all. Instead of this invitation into a completely new way of life altogether, as we read and, and learn this way of Jesus that's so counterintuitive to what we know, that's so counterintuitive to any kind of belief system that we may have inherited growing up. And the problem is it's entirely impossible to do that and not lose the power of the gospel. And it's for that reason that N.T. Wright says, the genuine gospel is bound to confront other power structures and other thought systems. It's inevitable. There is no incorporation. Because the gospel, the the way of Jesus critiques all other belief systems and and religions as well. At their most fundamental level. And so, you know, what happens when Paul and Barnabas correct this mistaken belief as people are enthusiastically worshiping them? It's Zeus and Hermes. Paul and Barnabas challenge their passionately held convictions regarding their gods. Paul says, we come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things. 
Well, what are the worthless things that Paul is telling them to turn from? Their belief system, Zeus and Hermes. He calls their gods worthless things. Ouch. I mean, that's... You know, you kind of hear this today and you go, that's going to be tough for them to hear, Paul. People, people, we don't like to be challenged on beliefs that we're comfortable with, that we're enthusiastic about, that we want to believe, beliefs that we love, that we cherish, that we hold strongly, that give us some kind of identity. We don't like that. And there are times when the gospel steps on our toes, the way of Jesus. I don't like to love my enemies. That goes against everything my parents taught me. If somebody hits you, you hit them back. I had a kid on our basketball team last week that there's been some fighting that got punched in the nose. And he went home and told his mom. And his mom said, will you go back and you kick his boop and send him out the door again? And that's an extreme story. I realize that. But what do you do with your enemies? What do you do with people that hurt you? You know, it's like the way of Jesus is totally different. It steps on our toes. It's things I don't like. And in light of that, it wasn't hard for some of the Jewish folks to kind of enter in and uh, poison the minds of people that were pretty upset about being called worthless things, the, the gods. It's a big swing in the story. And one of the things this passage sheds light on is the almost infinite ways that those who live out the message of the good news of Jesus can be misunderstood by others. You probably noticed, but there are so many barriers, so much anger against the way the world is which often people blame God for as they declare that they don't believe in him. There's so much distortion of what the actual message of Jesus is through bad teaching, through bad lived experience in the church, which I know a lot of us have had. That's how we found Evergreen initially. Or with Christians. Christians can be the worst with politicians who say they're a Christian and do terrible things. You know, it's it's a wonder that anyone can ever filter through all of that and hear and embrace this revolutionary message of God's grace. That might be the actual miracle in this whole passage. When the message of the gospel inevitably confronts idols that we love, gods that we serve, what happens? It's not just about opposition out there. It's about our own resistance in here. Paul says, we have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God. 
you know, all of this work is kind of like what Lori was saying is what Lent is about. It's a time of self-examination to see what are some of those idols, those cherished beliefs or these things that we serve that we don't even recognize, that we've just gotten used to, that the good news of Jesus or the way of Jesus confronts. Frederick Buechner, didn't you just quote him? Okay, we're on the same page here today. Frederick uh, Buechner describes idolatry, and you've probably heard this maybe, um, the practice of ascribing absolute value to things of relative worth. And it's easy to come up with uh, examples of idolatry on the large scale in our particular time and place, um, money, nationalism, patriotism, family can become an idol, community can become an idol, authentic sexual experience, morality, body image, uh, identity, the perfect house job spouse kind of thing, self-made worth, success, social media presence, uh, technology. There, There are so many things that we can start to serve and that can become idols for us, that we ascribe absolute value to those things, that sometimes we don't know it until we lose those things, or that we give them up for 40 days, for instance. It's easy to see how we build our worth, identity, on value on things that aren't God's grace, on the person of Jesus. How do we expose and confront idolatry in our lives? You know, this this is probably going to sound a little old school to you. So, bear with me. But there is something, and I've noticed this personally over the years, there is something about a time of regular um, worship that is focused on God and not ourselves, that has this real, um, this quality of refinement on on a heart and its desires that um, really fights against those other things that we're tempted to serve. There's something about this time of prayer and singing, you know, focusing our heart on God, of, of reading scripture, that is this really purifying thing that helps me re- recognize what my desires are, uh, what it is that I hunger for, what I'm seeking and serving, in ways that we just might not get otherwise. Jesus said that, you know, man, this great story, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from God. We're, we're seeking God's voice in Scripture. You know, there's a reason this practice through the history of the church, this practice of regular meditation on, on a variety of parts of Scripture has been so crucial for Christ followers through the years. So it would be a shame for us to think we've graduated from that, uh, that we, we don't need that same nourishment, that we're more enlightened than regular worship and uh, regular meditation on God's Word. We don't, we've moved beyond it. And just regular times of self-examination and confession, of really looking at ourselves and saying, 
Is my heart becoming softer to the things of God? Or have I noticed resistance to God? In what ways am I resisting God? Am I more thankful today than yesterday? Can I still see the good things of God in the world and in my life? Can I celebrate those things? Are the things that I input into my mind helpful for me as a person and leading me toward increased anxiety and fear or leading me to increased trust and faith? It's a big one probably. Is fear diminishing in my life? Have you ever thought about what that, just that could signal in you and what you're serving? Is fear diminishing in my life? You know, just times of regular reflection. I highly recommend spiritual direction. A spiritual director can ask you questions that you wouldn't even think of that will be incredibly helpful for you. And again, maybe all of these seem old school to you. But to me and for my own life, these are still essential in keeping me away from idolatry that I could easily fall into. During the season of Lent, our invitation is the same as Paul's. We have come to bring you good news. You should turn from these worthless idols and turn to or toward the living God. In these 40 days of repentance, how will you allow the Holy Spirit to reshape you? Will you be open to him revealing unhealthy attachments? Will you be willing to change? You know, if you haven't thought about that yet, of what you are doing for this season, uh, other than like Whole30 and stuff, then there's still time. Um, If you need some help, I I posted a couple of potential resources on uh, Mighty Networks that you can download that guide your time. I've been doing the one that's focused on um, racial reconciliation and justice, which has been really good. But I I know this is a season each year that I need to refocus my heart and mind on God. And, um, And maybe I'm not alone in that.